You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. morning's passage is Mark 2, 1 through 12. Uh, It's Mark 2, 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has an authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, EBF family. Woo. Do we need to uh, stand and stretch and, I don't know, all that good stuff? Good morning, EBF family. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to those joining us on or via live stream as well. It's good to be with you and together as we worship God, as we hear from his word. And we have been in the Gospel of Mark together in a series called Jesus, the Servant King, and we continue, we're continuing in that series here today as well. Last week, we were in Mark 1, 40 through 45, and we were reminded of how, how we were all essentially spiritual lepers who were alienated from God and from one another. We were among the walking dead, but God did not leave us to our own devices. He did not treat us like outcasts or pollutants. But he touched, Jesus touched us in a radical sign of acceptance. He delivered us, he restored us to the community of faith by taking our place on the cross. What we find then in the next, actually five stories here in Mark's gospel is five, what we might call controversy stories. Running from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And these stories revolve around the Jewish authorities and the response to Jesus' growing popularity. These stories challenge and threaten the Jewish authorities' power and prestige and their own authority. And yes, they even culminate in what we'll see as the first, the first plot to kill Jesus at the end, or there in chapter 3, verse 6. And so this first conflict story that you just heard read, Thank you, Brad. Runs from chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and includes what we'll see as another healing, but one that focuses even more on Jesus' unique identity. 
Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your, your holy and inspired word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes this morning as we see and as we hear this text, Lord. Would you challenge us? Would you make the strange familiar and the familiar strange? And Father, would you move us to worship and to obedience in response to your word here this morning? And Father, would the words of my mouth and, and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Over the years, I've had the privilege of climbing a couple of 14ers. Those would be, you know, mountain peaks that are over 14,000 feet in height. I'd love to actually do more. Just, I'm curious, how many here have done one of those? Have tackled maybe, yeah, okay, excellent, good. Uh, those are not for the faint of heart, um, but... If you have done that before, or maybe you can picture this in your mind, there comes this time, you want to get an early start when you're climbing one of those, because there comes this time about in the afternoon when you start to see some clouds rolling in, and you begin to feel almost like a little bit of the electricity in the air, like your hair starts to stand up on end a little bit, and you quickly realize that you need to get out, you need to get down from such an exposed uh, point, you know, anywhere near the summit when those afternoon storms arise. I think what we find in this, this story here this morning is, is another one of those types of charged atmospheres. You can feel the electricity in the air as this story plays out. And even in the presence, with the presence of the teachers of the law there, almost set, I mean, can I say it, almost set sent like an investigative committee <laughs> in the face of Jesus' growing popularity to see what this man is all about and to see if the stories are true about these dramatic healings that, taken, that have taken place. The electricity is in the air as people are drawn to Jesus in such numbers that they pack the place out, finding every nook and cranny, even sitting in the doorways in an attempt to catch a glimpse of Jesus or to maybe hear his voice as he powerfully communicates the word of God. That the setting of this electric story really is laid out in verses 1 and 2 when it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Here is Jesus back in Capernaum, this town that had become kind of a base of operations and quite possibly back in the home of Simon Peter that also would become sort of an, an anchor for them in this, the early days of the, his ministry in Galilee. Side note, I, I don't know if you're into these sorts of things, uh, if you're into like archaeology and so forth, uh, but it is believed that archaeologists have uncovered what may very well have been Simon Peter's home there in Capernaum. And it looks like then it was added to in about the 4th century. And then in the 5th century, a church was like built on top of it as well. But anyway, a, a consistent theme, though, in this part of Mark's, Mark's gospel is the, the growing popularity that surrounds Jesus and how the crowds flock to him. And some of this comes as a result of the cleansed leper 
helping spread the news, but Jesus is mobbed with everyone seeking healing. Every nook and cranny of the house is full of people. And a larger dwelling there in Capernaum around this time would have maybe been able to fit as many as 50 people. And as I mentioned, even the doorways are jam-packed with people wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus. I don't know about you, but uh, maybe it's just the day and age that we live in, but the thought of like this many people crammed into such a small space like gives me, like causes my blood pressure to rise a little bit. I don't know about you. But here what we find is Jesus going about his central ministry of preaching, preaching the word to them. This was the focal point. This was the essence of his ministry. Mark 1, 14 and 15 reminds us of his, his time there proclaiming the good news of God in and around Galilee. He, he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the summary statement of what his teaching centered on. That is the kingdom of God and a call to people to repentance and faith. In Luke's telling of the story, he adds, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, possibly prominently in places of honor, you know, the, the good seats up front. And in the rest of Luke 5, verse 17, it says, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. This only adds to the, the, the charged, the electric atmosphere of this, this gathering. Well, things get even more charged when then four men carrying their friend on a stretcher arrive on the scene. Look at the story then in verse 3 and following. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to, to him, could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wish we knew more about this particular paralyzed man and what led to him being unable to walk. Mark focuses on ultimately the, the controversy or, or the confrontation that plays out in this scene. But here are these dear friends, oh, these friends, who find the path to Jesus obstructed, but will not take no for an answer. A first century dwelling at this time would have had a, an outside staircase leading to a flat roof, a roof that was made of branches and packed clay that was over wooden beams. And the roof was often used for, for work, for laundry, for prayer. And these friends are clearly in, desperate, desperate to get their friend to the one person they believe is capable of doing something about his situation. And so they struggle. Can you picture them? Can you, they struggle up those narrow stairs carrying this, this mat with the man upon it and begin their work that literally is, the phrase here is, unroofing the roof. This is not a retractable dome here. They begin digging a hole, unroofing the roof, in order to get their friend to Jesus. Their faith is seen by Jesus. Verse 5, this is actually the first appearance of this word faith in Mark's gospel. And it highlights, I believe, three things. It highlights their expectancy, their confidence that Jesus, only Jesus, is able to do something to heal. It highlights their 
their boldness, the audacity of their love for this man. I believe it highlights their persistence. They overcame barriers. They got creative in order to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. Jesus sees the faith of the entire group in action, not just the paralyzed man. He sees their faith. And he turns to the man and tenderly and unexpectedly addresses him as son. Son. I've come to uh, use a particular nickname for my son, Samuel. I call him Buki. Can any, I'll just pause right here. Does anyone know, I should give you some context. Uh, That is a word that is found in Star Wars, A New Hope. Um, I was going to do a pop quiz. Actually, Olivia might already know the answer to this. But there's this scene where, um, instead of putting you on the spot, I'll just explain it. There's a scene where Jabba is explaining, I guess he's confronting Han about, yeah, he better make the next, uh, you know, the next shipment or else. And he says, Han Mabuki. And this, and this, in the subtitle, I didn't even realize this until I'd actually been calling my son this already. It says Han, my boy. And so I've been calling my son Buki. That's a deep dive. That's a deep Star Wars dive, by the way. But I've been calling him my Buki, and it's become such. I, I think uh, you might beg to differ, but it's become such this term of this term of endearment, of love, of also saying to him, my son, my boy. Just picture this scene and this tenderness in Jesus' voice and calling him son. It provides comfort. It provides reassurance, even in the midst of this electric, electric story. But what Jesus says next, I believe, comes as quite a surprise, probably quite a surprise to the friends in particular. Your sins are forgiven. This phrase is what's known as a divine passive. What that means is that God is the implied subject. Your sins are forgiven by God. And Jesus sees what this man's deepest need is and pours out his love and his forgiveness in that very moment. In the Gospels, Jesus never says that all disease is directly connected to sin. In fact, on another occasion, he warns in John 9, he warns his disciples to not assume that personal sin is found behind every illness. But at the same time, we have come to know and to understand how sin and sickness are linked because disease and decay came into God's good world as a result of our sin, as a result of our rebellion against God. In this phrase... Your sins are forgiven. Jesus restores the man's relationship to God and confirms that the salvation and forgiveness that was was promised by the prophet Isaiah has come near. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. How do you think the the man's friends would have reacted? Confusion, perhaps, at first? Well, this confusion would be short-lived, as we'll see. The controversy, though, really boils over in verses 6 and 7 and following there. Look at verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The teachers of the law or scribes you might have in your translation were recognized experts in the law of Moses. And in the additional traditions and regulations that also went on top of that, in a stark contrast, I believe, is painted between these experts in the law who are found sitting there in contrast to the tenacity and the boldness and the faith of these four friends who do everything in their power to bring their friend to Jesus. The teachers of the law are the real paralytics here. And as they turn things over in their minds, they question why Jesus is speaking this way. They charge him mentally with blasphemy and come up with the theologically accurate question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They mentally charge him with blasphemy because they understand that he is here claiming to speak for God. And according to the Old Testament, blasphemy was punishable by death. This would become a part of the central charges against Jesus leading up to his very execution, as we see in Mark 14, 62 to 64. And certainly the expectation in Scripture is that a prophet might declare something akin to, the Lord has put away your sin. But only God is pictured in Scripture as directly forgiving sins. And that is exactly what we find Jesus doing here. Mark begins his gospel by declaring that God himself is present in Jesus, the Son of God. And here Jesus validates this claim by doing something that only God can do, forgive sins. Verses 8 through 11 then draw attention to the identity and the authority of Jesus. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus clearly knows their thoughts and calls them out in front of everyone. What a remarkable detail. Again, as a, as a callback to passages in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16 reminds us that the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He knows their thoughts. He knows their heart. He knows the depths of their souls. And his masterful question, which is easier, is a reflective question. It is one that actually highlights what's going on in their hearts. On the one, let's parse this out a little bit. On the one hand, simply uttering the words, 
your sins are forgiven would be considered easier. Just to say those words, your sins are forgiven. Saying get up, take your mat, and walk in this context is harder because of how easily verifiable it is. It actually, it's, it's very similar to what is outlined in the Old Testament for the test of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, If what a prophet claims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. If the man does not get up, the one who says, says it is shown to not have the authority to heal. Ultimately, though, forgiving sins is something that only God can do. One has to have the actual authority to forgive sins. So at the end of the day, both are equally impossible. Why? Or unless God shows up. Unless God shows up. In verses 10 to 11, Jesus actually links the two actions. The ability of the man to walk again would provide living proof. I want you to know, he says, that his sins were forgiven and that God had powerfully worked through Jesus. Jesus, who for the first time here in Mark's gospel uses the phrase, the son of man. The son of man. It is one of his favorite ways of, of referring to himself it is a term that reflects, partially reflects Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Notice especially there the authority, glory, and power given to Jesus. Or given to this figure here in Daniel 7. But is also given to Jesus, the Son of Man. This is a phrase that mixes, the human and, and mixes both human and divine imagery. It shows Jesus to be the human Son of Man. And yes, the divine Son of God, as we saw earlier in Mark's gospel. It was not a popular term that was used to refer to the Messiah in the first century. And this might be partially why Jesus chooses to use this phrase. It, is not, it wasn't believed to be a phrase that had a lot of nationalistic overtones attached to it. Jesus uses this phrase 14 times in Mark's gospel to refer to himself. All authority in heaven and on, earth and on earth has been given to Jesus, as Matthew 28 reminds us. And his authority to forgive sins reveals how God is present on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He has the authority to speak powerful words. He has the authority to speak effective words. We have seen him speak these powerful words time and time again, and here he does it once more. Verse 12 highlights the response of both the man and everyone present. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, 
We have never seen anything like this. Jesus' powerful act of healing requires the paralyzed man to respond in obedience and actually get up. This is the final obstacle to his healing. And the man shows the same faith as his friends in obeying Jesus' command at this point. And notice the close verbal correspondence to what takes place. Get up. Jesus' words, get up, becomes, he got up. Take your mat, becomes, took his mat. And go home, becomes, walked out in full view of them all. This man is healed instantly, fully, and visibly, in a way that is visible to everyone. He could stand, he could bend, he could carry, he could walk. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on this passage, writes, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. And as we've come to expect Perhaps in Mark's gospel, the people respond in utter amazement. This amazement includes everyone. It may very well have included the teachers of the law who were there. And we have never seen anything like this, the people say. In response to the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? We as hearers, as, as readers, are meant to answer the name Jesus. Jesus. And at the end of the day, all we can do is praise God, is to bow before him, and to praise him, and to give him all of the glory. Perhaps the most surprising or stunning feature of this passage is how Jesus turns to the man, how he speaks tenderly to him, and in what perhaps is surprising is how he first declares, your sins are forgiven. In doing this, it anticipates what Jesus would do for all in laying down his very life. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Only Jesus can meet our deepest need. And it cost him his very life. Friends, that is the bottom line. Only Jesus can meet our greatest need. And it cost him his very life. The greatest miracle of all, and that of eternal significance, is the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is still in the business of declaring, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Only Jesus can meet our deepest need, and it cost him his own life. As we consider how this story intersects with our story, I believe we are meant to place ourselves in the shoes of the, the characters in this particular story. Let us consider together locating ourselves in the story. First, consider the people, the people that are gathered there to hear Jesus preach and the word that they hear preached to them. Do we as well recognize the centrality of Jesus' teaching, the essence of his ministry? Does it cause us to move to action 
the truth we proclaim about Jesus should be the same truth that we embody. Let us, even as a community, a community of faith, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. As we are reminded in 2 Timothy 4. Second, consider the four friends. What would cause us to do something as desperate and as audacious as struggling up these narrow stairs, bearing this man and digging our way through a roof to bring a loved one to the true source of healing? Or perhaps what might actually make us give up and go home in the face of certain obstacles? Jesus saw the expectancy, the boldness, and the persistence of their faith. Does he see our faith? Are we confident that Jesus actually has the power to heal the spiritually paralyzed and to transform lives? Are we as bold and audacious in bringing family members, friends, neighbors, classmates, co-workers to Jesus? And do we persist in the face of barriers and get creative in bringing our friends and loved ones to the only one that is capable of doing anything about our need, our greatest need? You know, what's remarkable here is that we don't know anything about the core beliefs of these four friends. We don't know what boxes they checked. We don't know what statement they may have affirmed. And yet Jesus recognizes their faith. He sees their faith in action, carrying the man, navigating the crowd, removing the roof. Faith here is more than knowledge about Jesus, but active trust and confidence that Jesus alone can meet our deepest human need. And Jesus saw faith that showed itself in action. Does he see such faith in us. Consider the teachers of the law. Oh boy. Do we display at times a similar cold intellectualism? Do we find ourselves more often than not as skeptical observers seated with folded arms? Are we just as well versed in the art of judgment? Does the scribe in us chafe at the idea of having sins that need forgiving as well? The scribes had just as great a need as the paralyzed man, but their knowledge and status blinded them to that great need. Are we, too bl- are we also blind to our own desperate need? Consider the paralyzed man. What is it that causes us to feel totally helpless or even in bondage to what might feel like a foreign power? What are our longings? What do we sense even is our greatest need? And how are we hoping and praying that God will show up in a powerful way in the midst of a particular situation or life circumstance that we're facing today? The most important thing I believe we can do is consider then 
Jesus, the Son of Man. Do you see him? He knows our every fleeting thought. He knows our hearts. He knows our longings and our every need. He forgives sins, shows himself powerfully to be God. He can heal not only physical paralysis, but spiritual paralysis as well. And in so doing, he demonstrates his concern for the the wholeness, the well-being of the whole person. He turned to and prioritized the man in the middle of preaching the word. Gulp. (laughs) He wasn't irritated by the interruption, but saw their great faith. And the heart of Jesus is to bring about wholeness. Wholeness. This is very much connected to what we believe God has called us to as our, the vision, the welcome home vision. That in being, that in becoming even more of a welcome and inviting home, that God would give us the grace and strength to address the well-being of the whole person, every person that is connected to this church family. Recognizing that it is all connected, the mind, the body, the spirit, all these various aspects of our lives. Forgiveness and healing are not two separate acts. Instead, they are two aspects of one thing, the complete restoration of the paralyzed man. And Christ's concern for the whole person should be our concern as well. Do we demonstrate Christ's same love and concern for the health, for the shalom of the whole person? And Jesus, Jesus is still in the business of the miraculous today. Each life transformed by his gospel should propel us like it did for those gathered here that day to praise, honor, and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Our rightful response is one of worship and of obedience. Worship and obedience. Only Jesus can address and can meet our greatest human need. Friends, God created us in his image, and we are ultimately accountable to him. We rebelled against God, and our sin separated us from him. The prophets, Isaiah in particular, saw that day when the promised, the longed-for Messiah would appear with healing and forgiveness in his wake. Isaiah 33 23 to 24, actually verse 24 says, No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. God sent, God acted to save us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we must be saved by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. Hear these words found in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 10. More of that picture that the prophet paints of the longed for, the day of the longed for Messiah and the healing that would be found in his wake. Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. 
He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Oh, church, we look forward to that day. Did you catch that line in there, though? The, then will the lame leap like a deer. God created us and loves us. And as I mentioned, we rebelled against our Creator. We used the breath that He had so graciously given us to curse Him. But God acted through His Son, Jesus Christ, to make a way where that way seemed impossible. And so, church, we must be saved by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus, the one, the only one who is capable of meeting our greatest need. And he did it all on the cross. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for these great truths that are found in Scripture. We pray that you would cause our hearts to sing, God, that we would leave here changed people and committed all the more to doing what you have called us to do in bringing those that do not know you into your very presence. Thank you through, for the power through the Spirit that you give us to do just that, the grace and strength that you pour out, and for, for the forgiveness that is found because you laid your life down for us. And so, God, we worship you. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for giving of yourself in love, for the healing and forgiveness that is found only in you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.